Hello and welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Peter Brindley. Now, normally at this stage you'd hear, and I'm Ian Beardsall, but today it's not Ian Beardsall, it's Peter Brindley, a great friend and colleague and presenter at many conferences around the world um, who I've got a huge amount of time for. So Peter, just tell us a little bit about um, yourself and, and where are you today, what are you up to and why are you here? Well, who am I? I'm definitely a downgrade from Ian Beardsall, let's be frank about that. Uh, I'm uh, an intensive care doctor in Western Canada, which is exactly where I am right now, and uh Big fan of your podcast, and Jesus, this is a love in, isn't it? All the opinions that come out of your larynx, Simon, I have time for. Ditto, Ian's. Thank you so much. And um, we've actually got a little bit of video going on in the background here. So I can see beautiful skies and trees and lakes behind Peter, and he can see the, <laughs> the back of my house because we're not allowed out. We're still in lockdown over here. Times are tough. COVID is still going on. Um, but, you know, we'll get there. We'll get there. Things are looking up a little bit with our vaccine programs, etc. But that's not what we're here to talk about today, Peter. We're going to talk about um, a paper which um, you and I and colleagues put together around social media and scoring. And I, I think th this this was really led originally by yourself. What, what made you sort of think about this sort of thing? Curiosity. Uh, the fact that I don't want to disappear into buzzwords, but I think we all need some digital literacy now. Uh, this is a pervasive, persuasive medium, i.e. online education, online sources for medical data and opinion, and obviously data and opinion are different. And so I think it is part of being a well-rounded doctor, nurse, healthcare professional to understand the source uh, and the sort of molding effect of the source. Um, Edmontonians, and that's my home city, are required by law to big up anyone famous that came out of Edmonton. And Marshall McLuhan, the philosopher during the 60s, came out of Edmonton, and he was the guy that said the medium is the message. In other words, the way in which the information is presented is as important as the information itself and there's no more pervasive persuasive medium than the online medium so we need to understand it yeah and we know that i'm a great fan of marshall McLuhan as well and that idea that we know it don't we the play is never the same as the book it's never the same as the video game is never the same as the you know the the, the film and so we've seen a lot of things translated, particularly, I think, as a result of COVID. People have just chucked things online and expected them to perform in the same way. And clearly they haven't. And and because they're different, the quality is different. You know, it, it, if something doesn't perform as well, and the argument is that um, the quality is not there. And so the paper, I should probably quote the full paper, should I? It's um, in the Journal of the Intensive Care Society. Um, it's assessing online medical education resources, a primer for acute care medical professionals and others. So everybody who accesses this sort of thing, Peter, your lead order, Leon Biker can't be with us today, unfortunately, um, and Brent Toma, who you may remember um, if you've been involved in social media for a while, was one of the great creators around things like the social media index, which we may talk about later. So a lot of expertise around um, going on this for some periods of time. Um, it's interesting because when you talk about the the idea of this being all pervasive, I do think that there is something in the idea now, and it comes from a guy called Julian Stodd, that we're in what's known as the social age. And what he means by that is that we've come out of the technological age. The technological age was where we developed things like the internet. We developed things like mobile phones and browsers and accessibility. But now the effect is not so much what the technology does, but how people interact using that technology. 
how the conversations occur and how the biases and the processes and the adjustments and sometimes the obscurity and sometimes the downright lies and sometimes the truths go through that. And I, I, I've always liked this idea that it's, we are now in this social age. It's about how we're interacting, not necessarily the nuts and bolts. No, I think that's very nicely put. The other thing is, it is a competition for people's limited attention span. That's the other economy that we live in, is an attentional economy. How long can I keep somebody's attention for? And so the whiz-bangery of that, the sort of immediate ease of a message is going to appeal to busy people who are dashing around trying to collect as many opinions as they can. You know, in the old days, you and I went to the library to -hmm. look things up. And there was a very uh, disparate, disorganized way in which you and I went to the library. In other words, nobody told us where to go and where to look and which shelf. We, We sort of decided that ourselves. And then there was a clash of ideas later on, much later on. And nowadays, we're directed the ideas are presented to us prepackaged, and sometimes that's absolutely fantastic. It's certainly very convenient. It certainly mirrors a consumer culture that exists out there, but it's a very different way of looking for things, and there's a very different time span over which uh, ideas are found, developed, massaged, battled upon, and uh, ultimately decided upon. These these things sort of happen immediately nowadays, and it's good, it's bad, it's just different. So we need to understand it. And for a half-centurion such as myself, uh, I realized that was one thing I had to do. It's interesting that you talk about the element of engagement, because, and we talk about this in the paper, is there is always the risk then that something which is particularly engaging, which is entertaining, if you like, becomes more dominant and more attractive and therefore has the ability to spread more and become more influential. And one of the criticisms around social media in general, which has been going for a long time, and you and I have talked about it and uh, and we've published on it in other, in other journals, is whether or not you can run into the problem of disproportionate influence, that people who have a particular presence actually are then able to generate influence beyond their sort of academic standing, I suppose, for want of a better term. And that's a tricky one. It's an extremely tricky one. It it segues very nicely into one of the things we talk about, namely the seemingly tongue-in-cheek Kardashian index. (laughs) So as I understand it, um, you know, if we take something like Twitter, so I have a Twitter presence and you have a far larger Twitter presence, and I vacillate between, well, I need to be in this forum because that's where people are discussing things and I want to be part of the discussion, and I also want to learn from the discussion, versus just a second. And if by followers, the two most popular people on Twitter are the Kardashians and prior to that, Donald Trump, do I even want to go anywhere near this toxic forum? So, uh, Simon, before you and I get too pious, we should say what the Kardashian index is and then uh, cap in hand admit our own. Yeah, so the Kardashian Index is a formula, um, which is more complicated than I can work out, um, but you can look it up. So there's a mathematical formula that basically relates the number of Twitter follows you have compared to the number of citations that you have. And essentially, what it says is that you, you really shouldn't have a disproportionately large number of followers on Twitter as compared to the number of academic citations that you have. And originally when this was put out, a a Kardashian score of more than five was considered to be a science Kardashian. 
So you were basically more influential than your abilities. And I do note actually today, um, Kim Kardashian has been declared a billionaire today. So maybe there's something, nothing wrong with the Kardashian index. But um, so Peter, I, I calculated your Kardashian index and um, I have to tell you it's seven, which is yes, I know. you are a science Kardashian. Well, and nobody who knows me well will be all that surprised by that. Um, I come from... Uh, an interesting background in that my father is a very traditional empiric scientist. And in fact, he could be accused of having too low of a Kardashian index because mm. you can be too low. Um, his is less than one, I would imagine, uh, meaning that his message hasn't been shared. And you could even argue that the taxpayer who has paid for the research hasn't got the full bang from it because they haven't been fully engaged in a discussion of his biochemical marvelousness. Uh, so, But indeed, I should accept that uh, my Cardassian index is seven. Woe is me. That's concerning. Goodness me, Simon, you better share what yours is. Uh, 39, but I think we should move on. From <laughs> well, so, it's, yeah. it's it's less than your age, Simon. I, yeah, just, yeah, by quite a lot now. <laughs> I think, but it's a good point, isn't it? I mean, the Kardashian index is a bit of a joke, but uh, it does give, to some extent, a measure of whether or not you are able to communicate your message out. Um, and so there's nothing wrong with being a great communicator. I'm not saying I am, but there is nothing wrong with being a great communicator. And I do often talk about David Attenborough, who I think is known internationally, mm -hmm as a fantastic communicator of science, but, you know, doesn't have a huge number of original um, articles to his name, but he's a fantastic part of the scientific community. And so there's nothing in itself wrong with being out there for sharing information and to being an educator. And I think that does lead us into some of the ideas about how do you decide when you're looking at um, online materials about whether they're any good or not. You know, there's also, there's, we can start with Gestalt, you know, does it look good? Does it feel good? Does it, is it about right? And I'm a big fan of Gestalt in this way to some extent, but it does have its problems. Well, I, I'm a big fan of Gestalt as well. Um, uh, I guess it's how much you believe in the wisdom of crowds, because even with Gestalt, it isn't just your Gestalt, it's your Gestalt influenced by other people's Um you know, before we even launch into the measures of social media, we have to remember that traditional academia had its own measures, impact mm. factors, age indices, um, and sheer citation numbers, as you mentioned. And those are imperfect too. And then, so it comes down to which is less imperfect, which is the least worst. Uh, you know, impact factor, which was the traditional one for a journal, is the number of times that it's cited in a certain time period. And that's fine, except most educational resources are going to be read but not cited. People are going to read something and say, hey, this was great, you should read this too. But it isn't going to lend itself to a citation in the next article because there are a larger number of readers than there are publishers. Um, and so even traditional measures have their problems. And part of this paper was to say to department heads uh, and others, uh, how can you have a more 360 view of your or academic contributors and, and how do you better define what an academic contributor is in this modern age by combining the best of the, uh, the old and the best of the new. But uh, yes, there are lots and lots of ways that people have suggested the new media can be assessed and perhaps we briefly go through those. You mentioned Gestalt. 
Yeah, so Gestalt is just a general... Actually, before we do that, I <coughs> mention your idea about citations is really important. Um, the one that I always remember because... Well, I can, I, I can... How can I say this? Not sure I can tell you why I know this, but um, there was a great paper... <laughs> I think you on, must. <laughs> all I can say is there was a journal which I have some associations with which didn't publish a paper on um, the ingestion of Lego um, by Damien mm. Roll and Andy Tang and colleagues from Don't Forget the Bubbles, which then went on to be published elsewhere. Mm. Um, to huge numbers of citations. I think it was one of the top 10 published, um, cited, um, or quoted papers in, in the year it was published. So, you know, not the world's greatest science, but clearly interesting. And citations can go the other way as well. So Gestalt is just your just sort of an overall general impression of something. My, my interest in Gestalt is always that um, it's not complete magic. Gestalt isn't something that you just pull out of nowhere. Gestalt is based upon your subconscious and maybe not, unable to articulate aspects of a global assessment of something. So you can't get it from nowhere. And that's a real problem if you're a novice. If you've been in the game for a long period of time, you know good when you see it. Whereas if you're a novice to it, you may not have that um, expertise and that time to develop those subconscious routines to be able to assess what's good or bad. And those are the times when you have to fall back on other measures, other experts or automated systems that might assist you in getting an idea of what quality looks like, <laughs> whatever quality is. No, no, all very, very good points. I pr uh, Just to play counter presumably you can be in the game so long that you are blinded to all the ways of communicating and all the ways Absolutely, of influencing yeah. in other words in other words the traditional scientist that that looks down their nose at anything that has a foam association now simon you had a large amount to do along with brent toma with the social media index perhaps that's the simplest yeah so my, my, my involvement was largely in critiquing it to be honest so it wasn't so much um, me doing the work. It was more um, Brent doing the work and me being a critique um, and to some extent overly critical of it when it first came out. But I do think it's, it merits attention. So the SMI looks really at, at sort of reach um, and, and to some extent impact. And it takes three elements and puts them into a mathematical formula. So it's the Alexa rank. Alexa's interesting. It's an automated ranking system which looks at what is the perceived traffic to that website. So how many people are going visiting that website, the number of Twitter followers of the website or the lead author, and the number of likes on the Facebook page. And what they did is they showed that you can generate this, you can generate a ranking, and it has um, a reasonable association with things like Gestalt and expert panels about what quality looks like. And I suppose the argument here is that in within the world of foam, that people, that sites which are visited frequently and are followed frequently naturally rise to the top. Um, and yeah, that might be true. But to some extent, it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you're big already, then you're more likely to have lots of people going there. And if you've been around for a long time, you're more likely to be there. So it's perhaps one of those things which, you know, you can look at the, the quality of the elements going into there and they've got some criticisms of those, not Brent's fault, but just the way they're created. But also it may, it may lack the agility. And actually, interesting, very recently, since we actually published the paper, um, myself and Brent and a number of other people have got together to try and work out ways that we can automate the calculation of the social media index so that it can actually have that agility to go backwards and forwards. Because at the moment, it's just calculated once a year. And that doesn't necessarily reflect the dynamism, which actually is one of the great things that we like about FOMED education. So there's more work to be done on that. And I'm, I'm really happy to be doing some of the collaboration behind the scenes on that with, with the team. I hope to get that out soon. 
I think you made some very, very good points. The, one of the interesting things, as you say, you may have disagreed with Brent in the past, but look, you're working with him, this paper's with him, this ongoing work with him. Like, one of the things that concerns me about the social media dominance is that nuance has been lost and uh, you know, we have heroes and villains now where people are on exaggerated two sides of a, an argument instead of trying to work through the nuance. And so maybe one of the things to emphasize about this paper, in, you know, insignificant as it is in the grand scheme of things, is it's an effort to bring together the traditional way of presenting uh, medical information in the new way rather than saying one is right and one is wrong. Absolutely. And this is an evolving field. All science works by trying things out, looking at them and then making improvements. And I think that's entirely reasonable approach, to be honest. So Social Media Index is still out there. You can go and have a look at it. It's on the ALEM site, so the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine. Um, and as I say, if we can, <laughs> we managed to get a spreadsheet up and working that would do this on a, a minute by minute basis. But then we kind of flooded the spreadsheet. So we need to change the way that it's calculated. But hopefully we can develop something along that those lines fairly soon. But there's other ideas out there as well, isn't there? The thinking of academic life in emergency medicine, they created the AIR score, um, which was quite an interesting way, again, of, uh, I suppose in the UK, we'd think about it like a kite mark system. So um, people, uh, various different people around the world might produce something in the FOMED world, a blog or a podcast, and then they would apply a series of quality measures. And if it met all the, the five defined measures that they used, then they put their quality stamp on, which is the AIR stamp. And that had important um, side effects, if you like, because then it allowed it to be used or more justifiable for things like CPD, which I know is a big thing in North America. I mean, it's a big thing everywhere, but in particularly in North America, getting your CPD points is quite um, is a little bit more laborious than it is over here, speaking as the CPD director for the Royal College of Emergency <laughs> Medicine. So that was quite an interesting one as well. I don't know what, what, what your thoughts with that were. Well, you are right over here, getting your CPD, your continuing professional development, in case people are wondering what the abbreviation is. Points over here is a bigger deal. Um, you have to be careful, again, that the medium doesn't become the message there where people's sole goal is to collect points as if it's a video game and therefore their education has taken place. Um, Maybe one of the other things that's worth talking about is internet search engines because we, we talk oh, yeah. about scoring systems, but, but the door within which you get into the room, i.e. the internet search engine, is just as valid. As I say, back, back when I was a boy, it was a case of going to the library and after hours it was a case of tracking down the security guard so you could get the keys to go to the library. So you better have a thirst for that particular piece of knowledge. Whereas nowadays it is a, an internet search and almost always it's a Google search. 90% of all searches, 70,000 per second. Um, and as pious as we we medical folk might like to think we are, most of us start with a Google search too, rather than a specifically medical search. Um, as I understand it, there may be more directed search engines coming, but at the moment, Google seems to win the day and control access. That's that's worth talking about. It is because. A lot of the scores that we've talked about, so the AI score, the SMI score, the metric Q score, which you can have a look at in the paper, and the revised metric Q score, they're relatively simplistic, actually. They're, they're just, you know, does this have these characteristics? And you give it a score of, you know, 0 to 3 or 0 or 1, and you add it up and you get a number. That's fine, and I kind of understand that. Or, you know, in I suppose in SMI, the, the, the formula is a bit more complicated, but essentially just adding things up and then timesing them by constants. Anyway, 
We don't really know how Google works um, in terms of the details of the score, but a lot of it is based around um, whether it looks like it should be the real deal and how accessible it is. And things like the website performance um, affects increasingly your, your rankings. And a couple of things have happened over the last few years, and I'm not sure if everybody will be aware of these, but I can tell a personal story about St. Emlyn's as an example. So on St. Emlyn's, um, we were doing reasonably well in Google scoring. And then all of a sudden, nothing was coming through from Google. We just dropped off the search rankings, um, uh, went over a cliff. And it's something we should have seen coming. And it's when Google changed the way that they do their search strategies. And they implemented at the time something called the expertise, authoritativeness, and trustworthiness score, or the EAT or EAT score, or EAT protocol. And when Google, the machine, looked at our site, it didn't recognize it as being a high quality, trustworthy, authoritative site. And if you like, you can go and have a look at the St. Emlyn site now and if pick up one of the posts that I've got. Um, so one I've done. And if you scroll down to the bottom, you'll see what I have now is my picture and then a description of me, which is, well, quite frankly, sounds a bit pompous when I read it. I am the webmaster, the co-creator, the professor. All my qualifications are there. I'm so important. I'm just bigging myself up. And the reason why that's there is to try and speak to the Google algorithm so that it knows that what we're writing comes from somebody who's linked to a university, who's got an academic title, who's got these things, so that Google then can say, oh, actually, this is all right. And they go back up the rankings, and the site goes back up the rankings. Now, it means you've got to be able to play this game and try and work out what's going on, because, and it's particularly important for medicine. So medicine, medical sites and financial sites are known in the Google world, I think, as your money or your life sites. So the attention that they pay to us is much higher with a higher degree of scrutiny and arguably more complex algorithms than they would if you're selling socks. Yep, <laughs> indeed. And as I understand it with Google searches, three quarters of us only look at the first three uh, things that come up in the search and less than 10% of us go past page one. In other words, past about search number 10. So it's it's very constricted and as you say we are having to big up and buzzword up our titles for our talks our uh, websites to get that early attention and and that's a game now academia how dare i say this was always a game in a way uh we've all had that experience as junior trainees where we've poured our heart and soul into a piece of work handed it to our supervisor and our supervisor said yeah all right but let me uh, introduce the dark arts of publication here i will change this word to this word and you can't say that and that needs to be truncated and the editors will hate that statement when they read it uh when they're just lying on the couch with the dog jumping on them and the kids around them and and so we packaged the message in the past for journals now we're having to learn a, a whole new dark art which is packaging it for the internet age. Is that better? Is that worse? It's certainly different, and it's definitely disruptive, uh, hence hence the conversation. Yeah. I, I, the other thing I think is quite concerning, though, is it means that you've got to understand the back door of your blog or your website to a degree which perhaps you shouldn't. What I want, really, in an ideal world, is for people to just put great content out there and for that content to just rise to the top because it's great content. 
Mm-hmm. But if you get to the stage now, so for the St. Emlyn site, you're know, quite happy to talk about it, that um, we pay for a program that sits in the back of WordPress that does search engine optimization that tells us how to choose the best um, keywords to make sure that, that Google and other engines see the site as best it can. Um, we pay money for a program that sits in the back of WordPress, which accelerates the load speeds of the site. Because Google's next iteration of the search, the next big change in how it's going to do um, rank searching will be very much about how quickly your site loads. So you have to optimize things like your large contextual paint time. I have no idea what this is. And so it starts to then get a little bit complicated, a little bit difficult, a little bit costly, and a little bit expertise in the technology. And I kind of don't like that because that's moving us away from where we started off in FOMED which is all about sharing high quality stuff to as many people as possible, as easily as possible, and for good quality stuff to just get out there. So although I'm kind of playing the game at the moment, um, it makes me uncomfortable. And it also means that you know websites now come with a cost. So who pays for it? Because it's free to consume. It's not free to produce, as we know. Um, but will that stifle innovation? Will that stifle new talent coming through? I don't know, but it is a worry. No, I think you bring up some good points. Uh, the, I mean, it's it's becoming an old statement now, but they used to say if the pro- if it's free, then you're the product. Um, you know, we're selling people's identity. We're 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 sharing a lot of information about the people who look stuff up. You and I now have to click on a dozen buttons that says we're absolutely fine with cookies before we can even access this stuff. So it is a brave and a simul- simultaneously terrifying new world. Um, what's it going to look like in five or 10 years? I, I don't know. I, I'm very, very grateful that I can sit in the Rocky Mountains of Canada and, and write a paper that I could never write in the past and the ease of access. And if I spend the time and discipline myself, the breadth of opinions I can find, you know, they're wonderful. So I'm, I'm not here to slag off the very thing that I'm benefiting from. I just think we all have to be aware and awake about uh, the sort of future of sharing information and producing information. Yeah. And twas ever thus. Uh, but, but I went through in the early part of my career, a slow education about traditional academia that surprised me. I'm now later on in my career going through a slow education about the new form of media. But um, I think we've been, we've been chatting on for a while now, Peter. Um, mm-hmm. I'm still incredibly hopeful. And I'm still incredibly energized by all of this. Um, so, I, you know, the, the paper, I, you know, we're going to tell people to read the paper because we think it's good. But I think as it actually gives us a real nice placement of where we are in the world now. But looking forward, I am actually quite hopeful. Um, I think there is a lot of expertise out there which people are willing to share. Um, and I think we're still pretty good in the FOMED community about helping new people come on board and giving them advice. It's certainly something which we do. Um, and I give a shout out to people like um, Tessa Davis for Don't Forget the Bubbles. You know, just one of the most incredibly generous people in terms of helping other people um, to set up. Mike Cadogan, you know, the father of FOMED. Um, that sort of stuff still goes on. So I think although it may become a little bit more complicated in future, there is help and wisdom out there. Um, and I really do want to see more people get involved and for new startups to happen and for them to be successful. 
Well, I I completely agree in that it's optimistic and it's it's engaged a different and unique and hopefully new faculty that wouldn't probably have been engaged by the old way of doing things. You know, you and I have written a couple of traditional academic papers, but done far more in terms of trying to translate those ideas and democratize those ideas and get them out there. Done right, this allows a much, much broader faculty of opinions. Uh, it, it engages the educators who were always sort of sitting on the sidelines before. Um, the translators, in other words, people who may not have generated the original idea, but put a sort of journalistic spin on it uh, and, and get it out to the masses. And this wasn't really acknowledged as as proper academia in the past. Uh, this was, you know, this was second division and maybe the educators were third division. I don't know. Um, things have changed. And so I'm very, very optimistic from that point of view, too. Uh, and as somebody who likes sharing opinions, you know, my, I mentioned my dad before, he used to jokingly call me Doc Hollywood because he, he argued that I wanted to write the book chapter rather than the original manuscript, whereas he's always wanted to do the original manuscript rather than the book chapter. Now, book chapter is now podcast or is now editorial. And yes, I, I own that accusation. Um, and it is an optimistic time because people are sharing opinions that didn't get a chance to share opinions in the past. People outside of the great storied universities, you know, you're talking to me from Manchester, I'm sitting here in Western Canada. That's a conversation one-on-one -on -one that wouldn't have occurred uh, 20 years ago because we didn't have the technology or that would have occurred at a conference that currently can't happen because of mm. COVID. So, so I agree there are plenty of optimistic sides to it. We just shouldn't go into it blindly. And so this paper, again, as insignificant as it is, is at least an attempt to try and uh, understand both sides of academia and opinion sharing and I, I hope it offers a little something to people who are on the same journey no i completely agree and just to reiterate your point that um the people involved in sort of education and certainly translational aspects of of this the the great explosion we've seen that does need to be recognized and valued and i think increasingly it is and the paper is largely about whether or not there are methods that we can do that in a quantitative way as opposed to just a qualitative sort of appreciation um i think there's going to be more work in this area and i'm really looking forward to seeing it actually absolutely wonderful thank you for the opportunity excellent so please uh, have a look on the blog and see what we're up to this month we're doing more than just covid um there is other research available um but there is also some really interesting stuff coming around out of the recovery trial very shortly the aspirin results will be out towards the end of the month um but if you're listening to it in the future, uh, COVID has now gone away and we're all back to normal and I'm off to a conference <laughs> next week. <laughs> so I'll see you soon, Peter. Depends when you're listening. You take your own. Just choose your own ending. But thanks again and have a wonderful time here. Magic. Thanks very much. See you soon.
Sí, sí.